bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. Hello everyone, what is up? It is me, Ewan, and welcome to a new installment of the We Love Dad Movies podcast. This week, my dreams have come true because we are finally going to be tackling the Western genre and one of my dad's actual favourite movies ever. And to do this, I have enlisted the help of my colleague, Christopher Tooten from Screen Rant. How are you doing, Chris? How are you doing, Ewan? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's an absolute pleasure, Chris. Um, we have known each other for over a year now, which mm-hmm. is crazy to say um well and it feels like so much longer too because so many things have happened in such a short amount of time like both just kind of like professionally but also just worldwide yes yeah and this year is like flown by in a really really strange way but yeah chris was um the lead gaming editor at screen rant who um i worked with last year through the beginning of this year and now you're doing a different role on the website and so see you less but you know I always get excited when you pop in, pop your head through the door. <laughs> yeah, I, well, um, you know, like I said, I wanted to take time off and we had, you know, a third child. And so it was nice to be able to kind of step away from being in charge of so many people. But at the same time, <laughs> on top like of being in charge of children. <laughs> yeah. And on top of being in charge of children, having to take care of other children. Um, but at the same time, like it's a it's a job that I had had for gosh, three or four years. And so like everybody, you know, when, when you work with people on a daily basis, you do kind of miss seeing them. And so like, I took a couple of months off and it was really nice. And I was able to do some more creative things. You know, we did a lot more videos. I started painting. We did the, uh, made the video game, but then mm. it's also, it's like, you know, it's nice to be able to have somewhere where you can just kind of pop in and see your friends every day. And yeah. so working in a reduced capacity, uh, while still having time to be with the kids at home and also, you know, paint and stuff like that. It's been really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, yeah, it's it's great to see you. Because um, <laughs> obviously we have our little meetings every week. Um, but it's nice to also get the chance to talk to you about movies more. Because movies are a big thing in my life. And we spoke about them quite a bit um, last year. Like some of my first pieces for Screen Rant were kind of like movie oriented. Because I'm quite a movie oriented person. And there was the Red Dead Redemption 2 article that I did, which was, like, about Sam Peckinpah and, you know, the the influences of the anti-Western subgenre on Rockstar's games. And that was something that you really enjoyed reading. Um, and then that's kind of how we got into, like, talking about our shared enthusiasm for Westerns. And it's kind of, it's been fun to to dip in and out of. And I think when I put out the, the call for someone to do a Western with me this month... Um, and, and, and you answered it like, like the dark night coming to be able the bat <laughs> signal. Um, and it, you suggested true grit as well, which was like the perfect, cause that's great. Cause that's like literally, that's like one of my dad's foundational movies. Like that was one that he always gravitated to. He was always a big fan of John Wayne because his dad was a big fan of John Wayne and true grit, Rooster Cogburn, the kind of like cantankerous, like, um, <laughs> old, old kind of geezer with the, um, the, you know, kind of being underestimated throughout the movie that kind of like, um, that was like a, a favorite role of his. Um, and it's cool that you kind of like, were like, yeah, 
True Grit. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's definitely been one of my favorite westerns. Um, I saw it, it. My father also was really into it, um, and he was excited about the remake when it came out back in 2010. And he doesn't usually, never really got excited for any movies that came out. I think the only movie that we saw in theaters he didn't fall asleep in was Independence Day. Oh, great um, movie. Great uh, movie, to be fair. Yeah, I'm glad that he was able to sit through that. He enjoyed it. But at the same time, he was never really just big into movies in general if they weren't Westerns. And so on our house all of the time, it was just like all of the Western TV shows constantly or whatever movies they could find like on an old movies channel. Um, but True Grit was one that... It was interesting because I had never read the book. And so when the remake came along, I found out that there was a book because as they always do, they do reprints when a movie comes out and they put them on all like Walmart and Amazon, whatever your equivalent is in England of that. Um, <laughs> y'all have Walmart, right? Uh, we have Asda, which is owned by Walmart. Oh, interesting. Mm. Uh, we also have Amazon as well. The Bezos Hydra has <laughs> 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 many tentacles. <laughs> But it's it's such a fantastic uh, adaptation of a book. Like when you look at movies that, uh, especially Western movies that started off as books, it always seems like they cut so much out. But because the True Grit novel, like it really isn't that long to start with and it is mostly dialogue. It's really nice to see how much of the, like from the book stays into both like this movie and like the original movie, but also the remake. Um, even though they do make some like pretty drastic deviations in the last like 10 minutes. It's weird how both movies just kind of go separate ways at the very, very end. Um, but yeah, it, it's something that when you talk about dad movies and uh, stuff that our fathers liked, it, it was very like formative to me. And so to find out that it was for you as well is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was kind of like going to be my next question is like when, when someone says like, dad movie you know what do you think and i guess you've already answered that with it being like the western it, it it can be um i mean it definitely is for me because my father loved westerns and so any any movie that is a western will instantly make me think of him no matter what but i believe you just did uh you finished up your noir november right and, and if you, and <laughs> it was if, like a, a partial noir member. <laughs> okay. But it, like when you think about uh, noir movies, I don't know if uh, you've covered this yet. Um, but in terms of that, like I was always gravitate back towards like Road to Perdition, uh, mm. which is one of my uh, favorite like kind of noir father son tales. Great movie. A great movie yeah. and also a surprisingly good um, graphic novel, which I don't usually I've like. I've never but... read it, you know. Oh I've yeah, never read that one. You, you, no. you absolutely should. I think I have. Um, I have it right over here, and it's also, once again, it the copy of it is Tom Hanks's face because oh, it's the yeah. it's the reprint that came out after the movie came out. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah, I haven't actually read the um, the True Grit novel. I've only seen I've seen the original. God knows how many times I rewatched it today before we recorded, and then I saw the remake when it just after it came out on home release in 2011. And I remember liking that one as well, but, like, because my dad so much, like, he, he favoured the original so much more of the remake. Not that he thought the remake was bad, but I think there's probably, like, the nostalgic element to it as well. And the thing that I'm most interested to talk to you about with True Grit, because you, you what, you've done the full prep for this. You've, you've read the novel, you've you've watched the OG, you've watched the, the remake, Um I'm just like, one thing that I'm really excited to talk to you about is that I feel like the original True Grit, it's kind of a Western of many contradictions. It's interesting because it comes out in 68 
Um, and watching it again, I'm really struck by, like... And I can see why the Coens gravitated towards it, because there is an almost unintentionally comedic edge to the movie, in the original, where you have, you know, straight-laced Matty Ross surrounded by abject horror, just giving this, like, proper, you know... Um, <laughs> kind of like good-natured like girl scout kind of like performance where she's unfazed by most things of course you know the more the more horror stuff happens towards the end she does kind of like recoil and stuff but the thing that i find so fascinating about that original movie is, is the marriage of like you know that that brutal kind of like almost almost anti-western quality of like this is you know awful violence married with that romantic element and it's interesting because you know obviously when you think of romantic depictions of the old west despite Wayne having um, done a great deal of many nuanced performances in his time. I always go to The Searchers by Ford as one of the great, you know, kind of like uh, introspective westerns and, and such a great, you know, kind of like, you know, um, Moby Dick style story about like what revenge will do if you're consumed by it and stuff. But when people think of like that romantic, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s cavalry western archetype to think of John Wayne... Um, and, like, he plays, you know, someone completely against type here. And he was actually, you know, he lobbied hard for this role. Um, but what I'm getting here, my long rambling point, is that I just find it so fascinating. Because, like, it comes out after the initial spaghetti western, or shortly after the spaghetti westerns arrive on the scene. Which, you know, bring, you know, the level of violence up another, you know, Hector. And then you also have Peckinpah's arrival, and he's going more violent. Um, and True Grit is, like, it feels like a little bit of a hangover from those earlier westerns. But it's actually, you know, approaching that that grim, dark element um, a little more forward-facingly than others. And that's not to say, like, traditional Westerns didn't do that before. You know, the, loads of them did, and especially in Wayne's career. Um, but I just find it interesting because it feels like it came out years before it actually did. <laughs> I think it's a, it is, it is uh, interesting in that regard. You know, the book uh, came out only one year before the movie did. Um, and so it was very much, I think the book probably was in response to that a little bit and the current trends of like just how Western stories were going. But it's also very much um, the, the, you talk about Maddie Ross uh, kind of like observing everything and getting a little bit horrified at the end, but for the most part, like having that spirit. And in the novel, she's a little bit harder. Um, and it's also given a framing device where it is very much kind of uh, much in the same way of Road to Perdition, where it's the child looking back on this one event in their life and how like you can have this normal life, uh, you know, for the majority of your time, but you will always remember that one weekend when you went like kind of into the den of horrors and saw kind of the depths of what humanity can sink to, but it doesn't have to control you and it doesn't have to like take over everything. Um, and it does, the John Wayne version does very much like, paint a more idyllic portrayal of the West than the book and also like obviously how it was in real life. The The biggest change just kind of like initially and visually that matters to me, I think, is that like both the remake and the book are set in like the middle of winter. It's cold. Everything sucks. It's miserable for them while they're traveling. Whereas this is just like bright summertime filming around, walking around Oregon, you know, everything is like every single shot of this movie is almost like a picturesque Western painting of what you mm -hmm. imagine the West to look like. But at the same time, it's very, very blunt in the fact that you're like, yeah, that's what it is. But also, you know, this guy just got shot dead in the street and nobody could stop him. And uh, I think one of the most interesting scenes to me, because it happens so fast when you talk about how John Wayne is like playing against those tropes 
um, where it's when they have the two men um, handcuffed together and one of them is shot and the other one isn't. And, it, you know, as the events transpire and they both end up dead, uh, immediately once no more information can be gotten from them and one once no more comfort can be given to them, the first thing both characters do is just start looting their pockets. And he tells uh, the girl to just go clean up this house. And it's not even given a mention or a second thought. It's just like, okay, they're dead immediately. What do they have? This is mine now. And I think the bluntness of that is kind of like the thesis of the movie, but also it ends in like a hopeful way in, in such a manner that it's just like your life can move on and everything will be okay. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because like they also have the bit after they after they kill Moon and uh, well after Moon is killed by um his uh quincy yeah quincy um they take him back to that like um it's like a little cavalry station or somewhere i forget where and um rooster's like oh yeah no like you can take their belongings and sell them and i'll split the profits with you and obviously matty comes in he's like no he he asked you to send this to his brother and he's like oh was it really Austin? because i think i heard dallas and it's like i love um i love this to pick i just think it's such an interesting uh interesting deviation for Wayne like obviously he played a lot of hard men in his time who you know would have um would have had their brutality be like almost like a, a mark of like how they were molded by the west and how they in turn molded the west itself whereas here it feels like a mark of like um dishonor and embarrassment and I think that's the other interesting thing about the original movie is that um both both leading men, you know, with Labeef and also Rooster, even though Rooster does eventually kind of, you know, even though both characters do come out the other side as being noble and heroic, um, the movie does not go out of its way to paint them in a positive light for most of it. You know, Labeef's first introductory scene that we see him in, he's hitting on a child. You know, like he he's saying like I would have, you know, he's basically like trying to like get more out of her, and then later on talks about how he almost considered kissing her and stuff, and just really gross. And they obviously dial that up a bit more in the in the in the remake. Um, and with Rooster, you know, it's it he's like a, a broken man uh, and someone who is like a this brutal kind of outlet for justice. And I think it's 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 interesting because they marry it so well with that the opening scene with um, the hanging. And everyone's going to see the public execution. And when I talk about True Grit being like a contradictory Western, it's like you've got this like beautiful kind of, like you say, colorized, technicolor version of the Old West, you know, juxtaposed with these awful normalized moments of of, of violence. And I kind of like that a little bit more than the remake because you go back to the winter at the end and it's like everything is cold, but it's like when Matty's stepping into the world of Rooster Cogburn, she's almost stepping into a Western. And then what, you know, Hathaway's doing is he's he's redefining that kind of element to it. I'm probably overthinking it a little bit more, but I just find it such a such an interestingly, you know, like yeah, like contradictory film. No, I totally agree with you. And the big thing for me, I think, uh, when you look at it is it's it's exactly what you said she's stepping into a western when she steps like into rooster shoes but she also like she goes looking for it she starts off her journey like going w- once her father has died and she goes to the town to like collect his body i think it's also interesting the differences um in just how that intro scene works in the original versus the remake because the remake just kind of starts off when she walks into town when she enters into that world and her father's already dead but the original does give you like those lingering 
lingering shots of what the happiness was before. And also like that gives you a little bit of the knowledge of like what she's going back to, you know, she has the mom, she has the younger brother, they are waiting for her. And you know that, whereas in the remake, it's very much, she just, she enters into the world and it already sucks. It's cold. Her dad's dead. She has to sleep with the dead people for some reason that wasn't in either of the other books. That sounds like a Coen brothers thing, honestly, where it's just like, Oh no, she's going to sleep in those corpses for one night. She can't afford the house yet. Um, (laughs) But she goes with the intention of finding, like, the hardest man she can. You know, she's not satisfied at that court hearing where Rooster's on trial or they're, you know, they're trying to see whether he used, like, excessive force or not. She's not satisfied until she hears that he killed, like, 23 people. And he's like, okay, well, if you can do that, then maybe you'll be the person for me. Um, Mm. And so, like, she's not... uh, innocent in this either i think she really she wanted revenge and that's brought up a couple of times where it's like when she says i don't care about some dead dog and some dead senator in texas like i i don't care how many other people he killed i want what's right for me um and that's a very like it, she's not you know a, a pillar of morality and i like that about mm-hmm. her character because it is like it, it is the old west type of morality even if it's not like something that kind of is echoed nowadays yeah totally and it's interesting like that that goes back to the hanging scene again because she's visibly disturbed by the hanging like she um she's like how can you tell what's in a man's heart i think like is the the line she says to um the other spectator and she's like you know wincing at this at this but then like you say is like perfectly happy to go and uh go and enlist Rooster to exact frontier justice. Although she does want to, you know, take him in alive and then have him be executed. But it's always seems to be something that she's uncomfortable with. And I guess it's the idea of like stepping into her father's shoes. Like she feels so compelled to take on that. Like it's a lot of responsibility. Um, like watching the original a day, I was like, and, and again, when I, I rewatched it last year as well, just struck by the, um, the level of like stuff she has to sort out following her dad's killing um, which, you know, for anyone who has lost a parent, that's completely inconceivable. And she kind of bottles it all up. And obviously, you know, the, the material at the time is hindered in, in a way that it doesn't, you know, give us a a full-on look into the loss that she, she is feeling in the original movie. But it's just something that struck me. It's like she's just so invested in business and getting the business done that by the time that, you know, the, the conclusion r- rolls around and she's finally seen shady and you know it's all coming out and he's there patronizing her talking through how to you know fire a gun or whatever i just really like that dynamic and you're right like it's not really something i thought about i hadn't really considered the whole um almost like like you say moral ambiguity but also like um hypocrisy at times as well like it's interesting well i think that um you you were talking about labeef and how he's kind of like introduced in a really gross way where he's just kind of like waiting for her and it's just like oh well, i thought about stealing the kiss from you until you turned out to be a bitch and it's just like dude you're talking to a 14 year old um but at the same time like he is almost like the most almost portrayed as like the white hat the most moral character of the story because he is the one who no i'm taking him for the government it's not for revenge it's you know because i was contracted by texas to kill him for killing a senator and i'm gonna go home and get married to a nice lady like he is the theoretical good guy in the story but he's introduced in a really gross way i think in the both 
refresh my memory does the original movie have the spanking scene in it yes yes okay yeah and that's uh it's very odd um whereas you have rooster cogburn who's introduced like as a drunk who nobody likes who kills too many people but he treats her with so much more respect as a person um immediately like gets very familiar with her and starts calling her little sis and stuff like that and it it's it very much is a juxtaposition of kind of what we've come to expect from Westerns and from these characters where John Wayne is kind of shitty, but also his shittiness isn't like detracting from the task at hand. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Like I think in any other movie, Glenn Campbell's character would be like the knight in shining armor. Um, you know, he would be the lead, And I guess it's, just, it's a way they subvert it in the, in the remake as well by casting like, Matt Damon, who in 2010 was just off the back of like the Bourne movies as well, so I think it's good. It's 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 um, despite it like being so safe in so many ways, the original movie is is quite subversive. It's not on the level of like a a Peckinpah or a Leone in terms of pushing genre boundaries, but certainly you know it it has it has its charms. And the other thing that I think is really good about the original, and you know with the remake as well, but with with the original, and you have that um compelling cast of villains and none of the people i mean there are a few throwaway deaths i guess but all of the um all of pepper's gang they're all given a modicum of development and 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 and, you know there's um there's a sense that when they pass away it is like a moment of sadness and just kind of like the 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 pointlessness of it and the way it's been it's it's way it's been normalized and the more i'm talking about true grit the original the more i feel like it's the normalization of just like everyday brutality and how desensitized you can become to it because when um when moon and and quincy are killed in the cabin um and like you say it's that instant switch to just kind of like you know whatever but like they're quite you know moon especially when he's played by dennis hopper he, he seems like quite a charismatic gentleman and he's there like being very dignified in his death talking about oh you know the only thing Quincy did bad to me was kill me and then even when Matty is with the rest of Pepper's gang later on they're quite charismatic you have you know Mexican Bob you also have um Duval in an early role and I really I really like him in this movie I mean Duval's like such a good actor anyway um but he leaves like a sort of there's like a resignation to Pepper in this movie where it's just kind of like Ah, oh, I've been doing this outlawed thing for so long, and I've got this bumbling idiot Cheney who's killed someone, and now he's done this, and you know he he doesn't bat an eyelid to anything, and I don't you know, I just I I really like that that dynamic that they have here, where every single death, like apart from Cheney, who is a coward, you know, like but he's kind of pitiful in a way, like he is just like there is a there's a simplicity to his character where it's just kind of like oh you don't know what you're doing. But, like, you're still a coward and an asshole, but it's kind of like, I feel bad for you anyway, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, he is. He's almost like, he's a comic relief villain. He's not, he yeah. doesn't feel like a threat. Um, and that is, that kind of goes to what you said about the violence and, like, people ending up being disposable. Because at the very beginning, like, you can see the dad seems to be very in charge of the family. He's got, uh, honestly, Maddie seems to be in charge of the family more than anything where he comes in and he's like, okay, well, what's my allowance for going to buy these horses? And, um, you know, she seems to be uh, from the very start, like kind of in control of everything around her, which works for her character later. But when he's shot by uh, Cheney, he's, it's just like an argument in the street and Cheney's drunk and he just grabs the gun and does it. 
and he doesn't have to be like a terrifying person with a giant outlaw gang behind him to cause tragedy and to cause death. He just has to be an idiot with a gun. And I think the something that they kind of like in both movies, they make a little fancier is when they're like riding along on the horses and like shooting the bottles while they're drunk. And something that the book made really clear was just that they missed more often than they hit them. Like even the ones that mm. weren't that drunk, even like they have a, a really good scene um, in the original where, you know, the bottle falls to the ground and Rooster's just sitting there and he's like, it takes him three or four times to actually hit it. But, you know, the, the point is that these people are all, none of them are scary monsters. They're all kind of just idiots who got roped into this. And I think it's very much what you say that like Ned Pepper especially was like almost tired of it. Like he sees Rooster and it's like, oh, this again is the, the Wally Coyote, you know, chase. <laughs> um, but at the same time, he also cares enough about himself to where he's just like, I don't care whether you kill Cheney or not. I'm going to leave Cheney and the girl here. I don't give a shit what happens to them. I'm going to go off and hopefully survive. Um, and that again, speaks to like the disposable aspect of everything. Uh, I miss in the original that uh, there's some really good speeches that the, um, not only speeches, but just like a few words that each of the people that are getting hanged has to say. Uh, and you see that in the remake, but then something that I think they cut out from both versions is that the third man um, the Native American, when he falls and gets hung, he doesn't die immediately. His neck doesn't snap. And so, like, one of the reasons why, like, seeing that first is so interesting for, like, Maddie as a character is that she sees both, like, the sudden death, but also she sees that, like, oh, it can also not be pretty and it can be, like, really dark and really disturbing. Um, Which is what she gets faced with at the end as well when the, the rattlesnake mm -hmm. gets her. So that could be, you know, a way of foreshadowing in a way, the idea of, you know, a slow, you know, not, I mean, getting hung out of the way is <laughs> not, a, not a fun way to go, but, you know, that idea of like a long drawn out thing, like I think that's, yeah. as George Lucas would say, it's it's poetry. It yeah, exactly. It's all it's all one big circle. Um, and <laughs> also the uh, the death of her horse at the end, I feel like is, is a part of that too, where it's just like, if you want to survive then you have to be willing to, you know, give up as much as you possibly can. And that's something also that uh, I believe was made like much, much more violent in the books. I remember being disturbed from this, like while I was reading, but he like uh, rooster takes a knife and stabs the horse in the butt to like make it go faster. And then he like rubs salt in it. But I, I remember uh, reading that. And then when I watched, it wasn't this time because I've noticed it before, but when I watched the remake, and she's feeding, or not the original, and she's feeding him the uh, the corn pellets. And she's mm -hmm. like... The corn dodger. Yeah, the corn dodger. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he likes these corn dodgers. At least he likes these corn dodgers. And he says, yeah, it's the salt in them. And really, like, that, you know, calls back to that idea. And it's just like, there's always something that's going to make it a little bit worse if you go too far. That scene, in both films, like, it, it does... It, it it really does like it's so awful like it's because it's you know she's she's there being like no you're killing him but like rooster has the life experience to know that like these are some of the tough decisions you have to make and it is sad because she she's losing like this this animal she's put lots of investment in, and it kind of reminds you of the childlike innocence of maddie like that even though she's you know got a maturity beyond her years she's still just a kid and there are still things that you know it's, it's similar there's an earlier scene in, in the original as well where after she gets, you know, 
thrashed by Labeef. And then she gets up immediately and is like, hey, we could do this to Jady. Wouldn't it be great? We'll, we'll thrash him with a bunch of sticks. They'll be bamboozled and then we'll get him. And it's that I like that, um, that, you know, occasionally bubbles through the surface and, you know, reminds you of like, obviously the whole movie, the, the whole, pre- the conceit is that, you know, Matty is just comically mature for, you know, for her age. Um, but it obviously goes out of its way to, you know, sometimes show that like, you know, she's a kid and this is an absolutely horrifying situation. And that's where the dark comedy comes in sometimes as well. Like the, the absurd premise of it all and the, 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 you know, the cartoonish element of Cogburn and, you know, the, just the, the, the kind of like unassuming creepiness of Labeef. Not even unassuming, but you know, the unexpected creepiness of that hero. Like it all, it all plays into the Cohen's playbook, which, you know, like people have talked about it as being like, um, you know, their, their entry into, like, just straight up, like, you know, like, uh, you know, just genre filmmaking. Like, it still feels very much like a Cohen movie, and, like, it feels within their, their their palette. Like, not quite on the absurd level of, like, a Fargo or an O Brother Where Art Thou, but certainly, you know, there is enough of their sensibilities and that original premise that, you know, it makes it work. It's interesting to me what they decided to keep and what they decided to cut out or change because um, one of the biggest differences, I think that really like informs, you know, we talk about how like they're, they're doing all these things, not just the Coens, but in the original as well, they're doing all these things where it's like, it's taking it up to the edge, but it's also pulling back a little bit to show you that either, oh, it can be worse or it could be better. Um, and one of those to me uh, that really like speaks to Rooster's character is his cat, uh, General Price. You know, he's oh my god, I he, love General he, Price, not the real life General Price, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that they decide to not have you know give him the cat in the remake, I think, uh, takes away a little bit of like the softness of his character. You know, obviously uh, Jeff Bridges like he plays him a little bit more rougher than John Wayne did, um, and just like the. This was, what, 2010? So just kind of like the gritty aspect of how everything was being shot at that time influences a little bit. But the fact that they took away his cat and, like, it also took away that intro scene that showed the happiness before the Depression, it definitely felt like, you know, they knew that it was a dark story and they kind of wanted to make it a little bit more in that direction. Yeah, and they have, in the original, they have the best line to describe the relationship between a cat and a human, which is like, oh, he's not my cat, he just rooms with mm-hmm. me. Cats have no, have no, I think, I forget what the exact quote is, but he's like something like, cats have no masters but their own or whatever. Oh, I had it, <laughs> I, I had like, it paused at that exact point, actually. Hold on. Uh, General yeah. Price don't belong to me, cats don't belong to nobody. He, uh, I, he <laughs> says, I need him, is what he said. He doesn't need me, but I need him. Yeah, that's what I, I love that as well because it goes into the vulnerability of it. And um, Wayne spoke of after you know making the movie um, how much he loved the scene where he's talking before they ambush Pepper and um, the rest of the gang at the house or the little hut, and he's talking to Manny about his his previous life with his you know how his original marriage broke down and um, his son or whatever and what he left behind and where he is currently in his life. Um, and he spoke about that as being like one of his favorite scenes that he ever read and how he felt like, you know, it was a genuine privilege to actually do that one. Um, and I do love that element of Rooster where there's like this guy who, you know, fought in the Civil War in one of the most brutal marauding, you know, bands of units during that conflict, became a violent, you know, like marshal after a 
brief run in with crime, had a family, lost all that, um, and is now in this position where he's like almost like he's got a part to play. And when Matty at the end of the movie presents him with that chance to be a part of another family again, like that, I, I it, it makes me really happy that final scene in the snow and that they're talking. It's, it's strange because they're talking about death. Um, and, you know, so much of the movie is about that kind of like, you know, the, the, when you when you're closer to death you you grow more accustomed to it and the idea of like you know normalization or whatever and um also finding like um reassurance and in, in, in knowing that there is an end or whatever and that I, I i just i really like that final scene especially because i found out as well that that john wayne actually did that last stunt uh usually he would have a stunt double for horses but he actually did uh did jump over oh, nice. things, which you know good yeah. for him <laughs> I'm so, I'm honestly surprised that he did that. Uh, but no, I, I do agree that that final scene, it does like leave a, a, a big sense of kind of like hope and that you can find family, even if you've lost it before and that sort of thing. That's something uh, obviously that was like a big deviation from the books where it's, they all kind of just after this one adventure, everyone went their separate ways. But at the end of the day, like when, um, when, Maddie heard that Rooster had died. She did send for his remains to be buried with her family because she knew he wouldn't have anywhere else to go. Um, but they didn't like, it, it wasn't a big hug send off, you know, we'll, mm-hmm. this will be where your final resting place go off into the world, knowing you can always come home sort of thing. And I, I, one of the reasons that that's really interesting to me is I only found out this existed recently. Uh, when we first started talking about this earlier in the week, did you know there was a sequel to this movie? Have you never it's seen called it? Rooster Cogburn. Yeah, have, have you never? I have seen not. It? No. Oh right, okay. I can't. I can't say that it's, it's great. It, I, I've, um, well, I've watched it now. I did not watch it before, but I, I've, oh, I've, I've, I've skimmed through it. it. I have not like sat down and watched the whole thing, but I did like it was on one of the free channels, and so I was just like, well, let's see how yeah. this is doing. A lot of day for night yeah. in that movie. A lot of day for night. <laughs> yeah, it's um. It's a weird one, uh, the Rooster Cogburn sequel, and it's it feels very much like it should have been a a oneer, like it should have just been you know this one role that 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 Wayne wouldn't reprise again, um, and he comes back to it in Rooster, and, you know it's it's because he he enjoyed playing that 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 part so much, but it's also like this weird kind of it, it has a lot of commonalities with the African Queen as well with Bogart, and it's just it's it's I, I can't say that it's good, like if, if like the OG True Grit to me is like a four star movie, like. Rooster Cogburn is like a, you know it's 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 an okay three like it's um it's more of the same um but like it's if you enjoy Wayne's performance you'll have a laugh out of it um but it's it's not got the heart that the the OG one has I no I feel like it's very much uh more more of a vanity project for Wayne at that point than anything because this was like mm. 1975 so this is six years later. This is like one foot in the yeah. grave. Yeah. Uh, well, Duke. the, like the, the weirdest used, thing also yeah. is that like it. Well, okay. So one of the things that's not brought up in True Grit, uh, either of the movies, but is kind of like a throw line through the book, is uh, religion, and it talks a lot about like you know just whether or not you should believe in it. What like should it have any impact on your life? What's the morality mm, of what you're doing? And yeah. both of the movies kind of ignore that. But Rooster Cogburn, like that, does. There, you know, there's a character in that who's very religious and kind of uses it to her own ends, especially towards the end of it. But it's weird that that aspect of the story kind of resurfaced in the sequel, even though it wasn't in the original. 
Um, but also like Rooster Cogburn ends with the woman giving a speech about just like how John Wayne is lovely and handsome and like here I'm gonna quote a credit to the whole male race. And that's the second that's the second to last line in the movie before she rides off into the sunset. Yeah, I feel like at that point it's it's because, you know, Wayne only passed away a few years later and um it very much feels like at that point, like um, he's leading into that kind of masculine image that he had accumulated, you know, curated as well, by the way, like specifically through a number of roles, um, like over the pre- preceding decades, it very much feels like he is, um, his farewell tour is reiterating rather than innovating, um, which is a shame because, you know, like even though John Wayne did a lot of samey stuff, like he had it in his locker to to bring some really deep performances like you know i think the og true grit is a great example but then also the searchers and the man who shot liberty valance you know like this is a guy who <laughs> whether knowingly or unknowingly um kind of like took a lot of introspective looks into masculinity as well as like the idea of like the old west um and yeah it's interesting because with for that speech to come at the end of rooster cogburn when that character is such like a you know, it's it's a man like half broken. Like it's not the um the rock hard duke that you would see in like a Rio Bravo or or whatever, like it's or the sons of Katie Elder, like it's like a, it's it's him on his way out and like it, yeah, that's a good point because I that, that that ending speech just feels like it completely undermines the point. Yeah, of the well, character. I, I almost feel like the entire existence of that movie does kind of go it, it feels very much like a like a direct to Disney Channel sequel to a really, really good movie, like a Lion King 2 after yeah. a Lion King sort of thing, um, where it's very much like, I mean, the movie starts off like it has, it, it, it mirrors the courtroom scene from the original True Grit, but it's just a generic, like, give me your badge and your gun. Like, it, it, the judge literally <laughs> asks him for his badge, and then at the end of the movie, he gets reinstated back as a marshal, and we're back at square one, just in case we want to do any more of these adventures again. You know, we have to make sure. Like, I, I feel like the, the one of the best things about the original True Grit is that it it did kind of subvert all of those things, and it didn't feel like it was going to... It wasn't playing into, like, serialization or making itself out to be more than it was. It's very much like a life in the West is hard and it sucks. And if you're going to live like this, this is what's going to happen to you. And so you can either, you know, Mm. you can get lucky and make it out like Maddie did, or you can die like everybody else did. And that's to me to do like any more stories with those characters feels unnecessary and feels just, it's a hat on a hat. But at the same time, I I do understand the idea of like really loving a character so much. You just want to, be back in their shoes one more time and you know put that eye patch on and do and do your draw yeah and it's it, you know you can't blame him because it was his first and only oscar win so it's like you know he probably looked at that and was like mm, maybe i can get another before i <laughs> before i peace out of here maybe <laughs> you know it's interesting like you know, he said when he accepted his speech he was like if i had known i'd win for this i would have put the eye patch on how many years <laughs> earlier or whatever but yeah, it's weird because yeah, Cogburn is definitely one of his his better roles. I don't know what you, what are your favorite uh, 
your favorite Wayne performances or movies? Honestly, like you, you've already yeah. mentioned most of them. I really do like The Searchers, but it, I do think this is my favorite Wayne performance because I think that it has a lot of different, it feels a lot like he is at points making fun of himself, like in his past roles. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love John Wayne pretending to be drunk. <laughs> So much. He does it badly. Like, it just, it, he does it so badly. <laughs> it, it gives me so much joy to see him do that. Like, because it, it, it reminds me of um, oh, what's his name? The the guy who's in all the bad movies. It's always trashed. Uh, <laughs> I for, I forget his name off the top of my head right now. But it's just he's so not good at playing mm-hmm. drunk. But I enjoy it's when watching he's, like, him trying to get it. them to to pick the camp, and he's like, the, like yeah. Hathaway's direction in this, like it, it it's very hit or miss for me. Like I feel like he like some scenes overstay their welcome, um, but like that some shots overstay the, yeah. their welcome. Like just that first shot of Maddie when it comes mm. in and it holds on her, and then it just holds on her again for another four beats, and you're like, what are yeah, we doing yeah. here? It's it's it. It, it's it, again it's a movie of, of many contradictions but i definitely yeah the, the, the drunk scenes are funny because you have that one you also have the later one where he's like um matt he's like do you want me to tell you like a little ghost story or whatever and he's just there going and he gets criticized and he's like Bleh. that's the that's the the old west equivalent of someone doing fake drunk tweets that's what that is that's what <laughs> that's what that is everyone's i'm just gonna say that whenever someone does that now they're gonna be rooster cock burning that's what they're doing <laughs> but it's interesting because, like, I haven't seen the the movie that that Wayne did after the uh, after Cogburn, which was the Shootist, which I know people really, really write. Um, and it's 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 you know he he plays a character who was dying of cancer, and you know obviously Wayne himself passed away from from that disease like a few years later. It's the one, have you seen the Shootist? I've I have seen it. It has been many many years, so I don't remember much. But I have mm. seen it. I've got to I've got to get on that because it sounds really good. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I feel like um, True Grit is such an interesting example of like just it, it's it's on the precipice of of joining its its cinematic colleagues. It feels like one last hurrah for like traditional westerns, um, but like a traditional western coming to terms with the the fact that the world has changed and that we can't always present things in not that all of them did that before obviously they didn't but it it feels like marrying the romance with with a more not realistic perspective um but something more darkly comic and tragic and yeah no i enjoyed it a lot it's it's a very good movie (laughs) it is a very good movie and it has I, i do think it's a well cast movie as you said like all of the all of ned pepper's gang um having uh like robert duvall is just fantastic the I'm interested in the casting of Glenn Campbell because obviously like he did the song for the movie, which is the only reason probably why he's there, but it's such a fantastic song. I love, I I miss when movies all had their own Western theme songs. I literally brought this Um, up when we did, we've done Demolition Man is the episode that's just come out as we were recording. And that has a movie mm -hmm. that has, that has a song at the end of it called Demolition Man. And and me and Scott were saying, we missed it when movies did this. (laughs) Why can't more movies have movies that are just the title, songs that are just the title? No, it, it's I, I, we have to blame Will Smith, I think, for doing it too much no, and scaring we'll never, everybody we'll off. Never blame Will Smith for anything. But it's interesting you bring up Glenn Campbell because I was reading up on this. And apparently, Elvis was also considered for the part, but was dropped after demanding to receive uh, top billing above above Wayne and Duvall. 
Um, well, that that would have been an argument to see. Yeah, I can't imagine Elvis. I've, I've not actually seen an Elvis movie. My nan was really into no, them. Really? Um, I think, I, like, hang on. I suppose that's possible nowadays. I, I just remember, I was like, there's always a channel that has an Elvis movie <laughs> on. Like, he's always somewhere. Yeah. But I guess uh, that stuff is probably starting to fade away now. Yeah, probably. I, I've not... Um... I've not, I've not watched. No, maybe I'm making this up. I feel like I haven't. I'm looking desperately now, trying to find if I uh, can see it. But my my big memory of like Elvis movies is just going to visit my Scottish nan, and like she had like loads of them, like the <laughs> Elvis in Hawaii. I forget what that one is called. Maybe it's just Elvis goes to Hawaii. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is the, there's not a big like Elvis fan community in uh, London? <laughs> maybe. Maybe London's still a far away away from me. I know, I know, like London to <laughs> London, London to Newcastle is like a three and a half hour train, um, which is probably not a big journey for you guys, but not really. It is no. for us. You'd have to any any journey that's going to take me more than an hour and a half. I'm like, oh, that's oh, that's a that's a long way. That's a long track. <laughs> An hour and a half is how far I drive to get to my mom's Jeez. house. <laughs> America's big, man. It's big. It you is. Can fit it's... all of our country in Florida. Well, Florida is too long anyway. <laughs> like you can cut off. You can, you can cut off half of that, and you wouldn't be missing that. <laughs> I mean, I think I think Britain and Florida are equally insane. I'm going to come out and say that now. Florida. Just... Oh, I don't. I don't know. Florida, well, Florida has more invasive uh, snakes and and crazy people, but I feel like Britain is also teetering on the edge of of craziness. <laughs> but yeah, the thing about Glenn Campbell that I find interesting is that I was looking up um, some reviews just kind of like around the time, and it seems like people didn't really like Glenn Campbell in this role. And honestly, like. Comparing it at least to the remake, I enjoyed him as LaBeef more than I did Matt Damon. Mm. And I enjoy Matt Damon in most things, but I think LaBeef is just such a like weird, slimy character that Glenn Campbell actually, like, with his little perfect hair in the middle of the Wild West, like it just it really felt like he was that person. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I feel like um it's a great choice to have like a glamorous country singer. And again, like talking about you know, Labeef being that quintessential Western cowboy hero who in any other movie probably would be the protagonist and having it be, you know, like a popular country singer, it's clever. It's, it's another iteration on the Western legend and how the movie kind of subverts it in a way. Like, and I, I agree, he's perfect for it. Obviously you get like the the action movie subversion archetype with Matt Damon in in the um, in the remake, but like Campbell being a, a, like, a, you know, like a famous country singer as well, it adds another wrinkle to that performance and i think you know if people are complaining about like his portrayal in the original like i feel like it's probably just the case of like he's and if it's getting under your skin you know it's it's intentional like he's uh he's meant to be that kind of guy like he's meant to have that that weaseliness and i think that the lack of um dimension to that role is deliberate like he exists to have the occasional moment of heroics and to be a creep and to make you question you know those old west legends not again not in, not in anywhere near the depth of like a peck and per protagonist or you know a leone or whatever but to um still make you give pause for thought i think it does that very effectively yeah absolutely um and then also uh 
Um, Kim Darby, I think, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, just kind of the the entire way through the movie. Because um, it is very hard to, like, bring that uh, childlike... Like you said, how, like, the bursts of childlike innocence come through, even though she does have, like, that hard exterior for most of the time. I think that's a really hard balance to kind of pull off. She is good in it. And one other thing I do want to mention as we kind of draw near to our conclusions of everything um is elmer bernstein elmer bernstein has a really good um score here and bernstein's like obviously like a, a legendary composer and i was going through it today i was like looking through and i was like oh elmer bernstein you know i recognize that name uh, i just completely forgot obviously he did the cape fear stuff and then i realized that he literally like composed somebody of my favorite movies like obviously he did um ghostbusters three amigos blues brothers airplane um like obviously cape fear as well and like the magnificent seven and it's um as i was listening to this i was like oh again i'm getting a, at the occasional the occasional way for the magnificent seven going on here where it's taking that same kind of idea of whimsy and adventure and it works again i feel like it works that whole juxtaposition element where it's you know it's it's painted as a traditional western whereas you know in practice, it, it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, I, it's a fantastic soundtrack. Like I, I said already how much I love the song at the beginning, but all the way throughout the movie. Um, and I think the sequel to it still kind of carries that. I don't know who did who was the composer for that one, but it definitely felt like it was still carrying the same themes while not being quite like to the same Lawrence, work, probably. Lawrence Rosenthal, who... Okay. Let's see what else he's done. I have not seen... Any of the movies that he's composed, <laughs> apart from Rooster Cockburn. Um, is there anything that uh, stands out as... No, nothing nothing really. It's interesting because it, it definitely felt like it was mimicking the original, mm. but not quite up to the same level. Yeah. Um, but I still really did enjoy it. And I love just kind of that, when, when you talk about The Magnificent Seven, um, like that has such a good, all the way through, it has such good background music. And it's something that you can kind of just put on in any situation and just kind of like have in the back of your head, just kind of moving you along the day. And you don't see that with a lot. I think Westerns uh, as a genre specifically have a a certain music that's attached to them that always feels like you're traveling and always feels like an adventure. And you don't really see that with other types of films. Like you can't just say like, oh, this is like a movie about pirates because it has, you know, obviously you can have like pirate tunes and stuff, but it's just like coastal music is different than Western music. And you won't be able to like identify it every single time the exact same way. Mm. Yeah. I'm trying to think who, who did the, um, the remake? Cause obviously I was talking about like visually, like obviously it's a completely different kettle of fish and, Roger Deakins did the cinematography and Deakins is obviously like a legend and I do love how how that looks but I've completely forgotten who did the music for that one uh, and again it's been it will have been literally a decade since I watched the remake so I don't know what your thoughts on the score for that were uh it very it, very similar like it was just it was very similar to the original but not not as well mm. yeah um like I, you know, it, nothing about it even, I wouldn't even say, like, it, nothing about it stood out to me in such a way. Like, every time, one of the best parts about, like, watching old westerns to me is when you turn it on and you get that big bombastic score at the beginning, the big beautiful landscape, you know, the big blocky fonts of text that tell you, you know, who everybody is and what the name of the movie is. It's just like, bah, 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 you know, true. <laughs> 
oh time for true grit like that's <laughs> that's something that you're not going to see in a depressing movie that came out in 2010 like it, it's not going to have that like again the the juxtaposition to the violence that's about to ensue you know even the leone movies like i love every single intro especially like to um what is it good the bad and the ugly where it's just or no, it's for a few dollars more where it's, it's just, just the like guy in the, open the guy getting oh, shot yeah. and he falls off the horse and it just starts. And it's just like, oh, well, here we go. That is my and favorite Leone, that one. It, I think I like Good, the Bag, and the Ugly better, but I understand why that would like a few dollars more is your <laughs> I favorite. I just love like, Lee Van Cleef, man. I just, I think he's great. Such a great He looks, He looks like such a villain that i like him more in the good the bad yeah. and the ugly because it's, he's so evil it's literally like the way i always think of it as is it feels like when arnie enters the scene in terminator 2 and he's the hero like it's like he's 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 <laughs> built like a villain but he's more compelling as a hero like yeah i think i think that's that's everything i have to say really about true Grit. i don't know if you had any other thoughts on it where it kind of ranks among your favorite westerns maybe or any other dad movie opinions you had to share um, I do think that it's probably one of my favorite Westerns, like just in general of all time. Uh, I do rank the book higher than both of the movies. And if you haven't read it, I do recommend everybody reading it because it, it's, it's a very quick read, but it also like, it's all in Maddie's head. Mm. And I think the biggest loss from the translation from book to film is that because you don't want to do it with a voiceover because voiceovers just aren't fun. Uh, but the biggest loss is just kind of like losing her thoughts and losing what her opinion is on like certain things that transpire. And I think both actresses played her really, really well and showed as much as they could. But seeing the story like straight from her eyes and also like as an adult looking back on this time in her life so that you have a little bit of that like retrospect oh well maybe this would have happened if i'd have said this or if this would have happened if i'd have said this really gives the whole story like uh more of a finality and it kind of like really drives home a lot of the juxtaposition stuff that we were talking about mm. um because she does end up being like super into religion and super into finance which is yeah you know, obviously the finance stuff was in the movies but it's nice to see like where she ends up after such a ridiculously violent and traumatic experience mm. yeah totally well it's been a privilege to have you on talking about true grit i'm glad that uh, we finally tackled the western on this podcast <laughs> hopefully it'll be the first of many yeah absolutely i had a great time being here thank you so much for having me yeah do you have anything that you want to plug before we uh sign off Oh, geez. Um, well, I guess uh, read your stuff and everybody else's stuff on Screen Rant. Um, buy my games at uh, Filthy and Free Publishing. And I have a YouTube channel also called Filthy and Free Publishing, where we do all kinds of ridiculous stuff that it's really hard to quantify because we just do whatever we feel like <laughs> was fun for the last week. I think the last thing we did was a painting video. So Well, that's good because you've also been doing the, um, the Bob Ross stuff on your Twitter, which people uh, can find you at. Oh, yeah, uh, at Chris Teuton, T-E-U-T-O-N, on Twitter. Cool. Uh, and just so just so you can see, look, look at that one. Oh, beautiful. I'm going to give you everyone at home an audio description here. It's this beautiful sunset landscape featuring palm trees and a little bit of, what's that, like just a little river poking over there? And then, oh, beautiful. It's gorgeous. 
and you'll never see it. <laughs> it's all for me. Uh, but yeah, thank you again to Chris. And also, before we sign off, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh Brown. Your support is lovely. This has been the Wheel of Dad Movies podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ewan Ruins Things. You can, of course, follow the podcast as well at Wheel of Dad Movies. Next month, it's Christmas time, and we're going to be doing lots of Shane Black stuff. So I'm going to be uh, settling on the uh, final roster for that uh, next weekend. I'm very excited to to start doing that because, yeah, I love Shane Black. I just I just rebought I just bought the the Lethal Weapon box set as well because I love those movies. Um, but yeah, this has been the We Love Dad Movies podcast. I've been Ewan. This has been Chris, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye, everybody.